Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm Will Sherlin, and on this week's episode of the podcast, we'll be looking at innovation and breakthrough thinking. Four great ways to make breakthroughs when you find yourself stuck in neutral. Why expertise is the enemy of innovation. And what magicians can teach us about the art of innovation. Here with us today to discuss those topics and more is Stephen Shapiro. Stephen is a best-selling author and keynote speaker who has worked with companies like 3M, Procter & Gamble, Marriott, Nike, and Microsoft to improve their innovation practices. His fifth and most recent book is titled Best Practices Are Stupid, which was named the Best Innovation and Creativity Book of 2011 and is an international number one bestseller. He's also the author of Personality Poker, The Little Book of Big Innovation Ideas, Goal-Free Living, and 24-7 Innovation. Among the networks and publications Stephen has appeared on or in are CNBC, CBS, ABC, USA Today, Fortune, and The Wall Street Journal. During his 15-year career at Accenture, he led a 20,000-person innovation practice. You can find out more about him on his website at stephenshapiro.com. That's Stephen with a P-H. And you can follow him on Twitter at at Stephen Shapiro. Welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Ah, it's my pleasure to be here, Will. All right, so, so let's start things off today by defining breakthrough thinking. Do you have a, a standard definition that you used when somebody asks you what exactly it is? Well, I think you know, breakthroughs is a category of innovation. So innovation is, for the most part, anything which solves a particular problem that someone has and it creates value for the company in the long run. So innovation is, is about that novelty. Uh, with a purpose, I would say breakthroughs are discontinuous in nature. And when we look at most companies, uh, 70 to 80% of the innovations that are created are sort of continuous innovations. They're built on the past, they're improvements, they're incremental, use whatever word you want. Mm-hmm. To me, the breakthroughs are something which is not predictable based on the past. It could be a fundamentally different business model that we implement that revolutionizes an industry or revolutionizes the way a company does something. It could be a, uh, it could be a product which on the surface doesn't seem that complex to introduce, but in fact, the solution behind it requires some breakthrough thinking. So it's basically anything which is not built on the past. Okay, got it. And, and are there different ways that you maybe think about coming up with breakthrough innovations versus continuous or incremental? Well, I'm a big believer that expertise is the enemy of breakthrough innovation and that regular innovations, continuous innovations, incremental innovations are usually solved by experts. Mm -hmm. The breakthroughs I find typically come from a different domain of expertise. So it's all about reframing a challenge such that you can find a solution in a fundamentally different place. So as a, as a quick example, uh, there's a company that was looking to make a whitening toothpaste that didn't use abrasives or bleaches. And what they wanted to do was figure out how do they, you know, develop a new toothpaste that that did this. And they spent a lot of time and money trying to think it through. And then they realized that 
the solution to making whites whiter, which is essentially what they were trying to do, making whites whiter without bleach already existed. Their laundry detergent division creates white illusion through blue dye. Uh, so laundry detergent doesn't make your whites whiter, it just makes them bluer, prevents the reflection of yellow. So they created a toothpaste that uses a blue dye as a way of making teeth appear whiter. And I call that, even though the solution, again, is not uh, this massive revolutionary concept, I do believe that the thought process of looking to laundry detergent as a solution for uh, dental care is the thought process behind breakthroughs. Okay, got it. That, that makes perfect sense. So, so let me ask you to expound upon something you mentioned in that answer, which is that expertise is the enemy of innovation. Can you talk a little more about the rationale behind that statement and why you think it's applicable in the business world today? Sure. So if you look at the brain, one of the things that scientists know is that when you think about something for a long time uh, or you think about it a lot, the brain will build neural pathways so that it can do quick recall. And one of the things that I think is important for people to recognize is that the brain is not built for innovation. The brain is built purely for survival. So what the brain assumes is that anything you've done in the past kept you alive. Therefore, perpetuating the past is actually the key to long-term survival. Therefore, what it does is it builds these grooves, these neural pathways for instant recall of uh, concepts and topics that we thought about for a long time. So what will happen is if you're an expert, you will be able to come up with an answer quickly. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. You don't have to think about something a lot. So you built these neural pathways to concepts that you've studied for a long time. This makes it very difficult, though, for you to develop something which is not past-based because it ends up putting on these blinders. It limits your peripheral vision and limits your ability to find solutions. So as a result of these neural pathways, most solutions that we naturally develop are actually just uh, past-based improvements. If we really want to develop the breakthroughs, if we want to just think differently in general, we need to recognize those blind spots that we have. We need to understand these neural pathways that will want us to perpetuate the past and then start looking at different ways of finding solutions. Okay, great. And yeah, we, we did an episode with a guy named Dr. John Kanegi on the, the neurophysiology of innovation. If, uh, if anyone is, is interested in exploring further the kind of, uh, well, the, the, you know, what's happening in the brain as we're going through the process and, and trying to innovate. But so on a, on a somewhat similar note, is there a certain forum or environment that you find works best for a person or a team if they're looking to kind of consciously engage in breakthrough thinking? So there's a lot of different platforms that you can use and different methods and different mindsets. So I'll talk about each of those. Okay. Uh, first of all, I would say that there are platforms that enable you to do breakthrough thinking. For example, uh, crowdsourcing, when done correctly, can be a great source of breakthroughs. I'll give you a very simple example. Uh, the, the Exxon Valdez oil spill, 1989, 10.8 million gallons of crude oil pumped into the icy waters of Prince William Sound in Alaska. And for 20 years, they had oil experts trying to clean up the oil. And the big issue that they always had is because the temperatures were so close to freezing, every time they would try to extract the oil water mixture, it would freeze. 
And so they had oil experts working on a freezing water oil problem. And they couldn't seem to solve the problem. Only when the question was reframed, when they asked a different question, they realized maybe the problem isn't specific to oil, and maybe the problem has nothing to do with temperature, but rather it's a common fluid dynamics issue called viscous shearing, which basically means any dense liquid put under force or acceleration, its molecules will seize up. So when they asked the question, using crowdsourcing, how do we prevent viscous shearing in a dense liquid? They got a solution not in two decades, but in six weeks from someone who is a chemist working in the construction industry who is working on the problem of wet cement essentially freezing in the chutes. Wet cement is a dense liquid, and it suffers from viscous shearing. And this guy put a little device on the chutes that would vibrate the molecules to prevent the molecules from seizing. That same technology that solved the construction issue was brought to Alaska and solved a two-decade-old problem. To me, that is breakthrough thinking. And I would say that that happened because they use one method, which is uh, proper use of crowdsourcing. They found a solution in a different domain of expertise. Another way to do that is to just sort of rethink the question, like ask yourself who else might have solved a problem like this. So part of this is just a mindset change. So a computer chip manufacturer was trying to reduce the bubbles in their manufacturing process, and they asked the question, who else deals with bubbles? And of course, there's a lot of different issues, but what they found was that the people who are experts in bubbles are actually champagne manufacturers. So they went off and they talked to the people who manufacture champagne to understand what creates bubbles and also what prevents bubbles. And they found a workable solution in that. Again, that's a breakthrough. It's talking about high-tech and electronics, talking to you know, the, the uh, food industry, essentially. Uh, and then the last example I'll give you is what I call purposeful tangents. And this is actually one of my favorite concepts. Purposeful tangents is essentially where if you think about it, if you are an expert in retail or if you're an expert in finance, you probably spend close to 100% of your time going to retail conferences or finance training. Purposeful tangents say basically take a percentage of your time and learn from people who are not in random domains but rather are in related domains. There's a group called Pumps and Pipes, which are cardiologists, and gas pipeline engineers who get together on a regular basis to share what they've learned about the cardiovascular system and how it might apply to the transmission of gas and vice versa. The thing they have in common is the movement of a fluid through a tube. So purposeful tangents are very useful. Asking who else has solved a problem like this is very useful and crowdsourcing can be very useful for developing breakthroughs. Okay, great. So, so let me ask you about a concept that you put forward in your most recent book, which is called Best Practices Are Stupid, and it's the concept that asking for ideas is a bad idea. So on its face, you might think that lots of ideas coming in from all different corners of an organization might uncover opportunities for innovation. Why do you think that asking for ideas is a bad idea unto itself? Well, here's the reality. Every person in an organization or outside of an organization has an opinion, suggestion, or idea. It doesn't mean that it's good. And here's what I see consistently uh, across the boards when companies create suggestion boxes. You know, they, they might ask, how do we increase the revenues of the company? How do we increase productivity? How do we, you know, what's, what's your idea? 
And what ends up happening is they will get a lot of noise. Uh, the Deepwater Horizon oil rig explosion, they used the concept of asking for ideas. They created a, a platform where people could submit solutions on how to stop the flow of the oil. They got 123,000 suggestions, of which you know, less than a dozen of them were deemed as having any value. In the end, none of them proved to be useful. That meant that there's 123,000 concepts that somebody took the time to think about, enter into the system, and evaluate. So we do that with our suggestion boxes. We ask people for their ideas. We get 1,000 ideas. We implement two. 998 people are annoyed that their ideas weren't implemented and the system shut down. So we don't want to ask for ideas because it creates a lot of noise inside the system. I, I'm a big believer that we want to maximize uh, our signal-to-noise ratio, which is basically the ratio between the great solutions that get imp implemented that ultimately create the value we want and the noise is everything else. There's the good ideas that didn't get implemented. There's the bad ideas. They're uh, wasted time. And most companies have an extremely low signal-to-noise ratio. And one of the objectives of a good innovation program is to maximize it. Okay, so, so if we don't want to ask for ideas, what do we want to ask for? Feed, feedback on ideas or, or, or do you just want to, to have one innovation team who's kind of, you know, it, it, entire domain is, is corporate innovation efforts? What, I guess, how involved do you need to get all corners of the organization? So I love having everybody involved. Uh -huh. So I'm not looking for ideas from people. Uh -huh. I'm looking for solutions from people. And there's a big difference. Yeah. So let me, let me contrast the two real quickly. An idea-driven model basically says we have a suggestion box for any person to submit any idea about anything. So that means, first of all, the, the, it runs the gamut of concepts. It's all over the map, and the noise is very high. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing is ideas don't have owners. They don't have funding. They don't have resources. They don't have evaluation criteria. They're just, they're just thought bubbles. Mm -hmm. Challenges, well-framed challenges, on the other hand, which are submitted to an organization, internally or externally, for solutions is very different. So let's say we are trying to find a way of creating, uh, solving a problem that we have with a particular market segment, and we're looking for input from people on how do we do that. Now we're not just saying, give me a random idea. We're looking for solutions to well-framed challenges. So one of my big beliefs is you don't think outside the box. You find a better box. The better box is a well-framed challenge that has an owner, sponsor, it uh, has evaluation criteria, it has evaluators, it has money, it has resources. And basically, when you have that challenge solved, you have everything in place to implement it. This process alone has increased ROI in companies a minimum of tenfold because they reduce the noise, they get people focused on what matters most, and they have everything in place to be able to start implementing once they get the solution. It's not like an idea now has to find a home. So it might seem like a subtle change, but it's actually a massively significant change for organizations when they move to a challenge-centered innovation approach rather than an idea-driven approach. Okay, got it. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. One of our uh, one of our previous guests is an author named Warren Berger who wrote a book you may have heard of called A More Beautiful Question, um, and that was wow. you know essentially the the crux of of his book was that if you ask yourself the right questions, you're much more likely to find the right answers.
Right. And, you know, there's, you know, Einstein had a quote that's attributed to him. He didn't say this exactly, but mm-hmm. it's good paraphrase. He said, if I had an hour to save the world, I'd spend 59 minutes defining the problem, one minute finding solutions. And from my experience, most people are running around spending 60 minutes on things that don't matter. So asking questions has a profound impact on the types of solutions you're going to develop. And when it comes to innovation, it becomes even more important because it gets people focused. And to me, that's the key is most innovation programs dissipate our energies, innovate everywhere, improve anything. We're going to try to, you know, make every aspect of the business as good as we can, as opposed to saying, well, no, we don't want that. We're only going to innovate where we differentiate, only invest our energies in the parts of the business that actually truly fundamentally set us apart from the competition. We're only going to innovate around well-framed challenges. You know, these questions that are thought through enough to know that the solutions are going to be practical and achievable when we're done. So it, it really is an important concept. You're right. Yeah, Definitely. So, so let me ask you about a recent article that you wrote for Success Magazine about four ways to boost breakthrough thinking. Can you go into what those four ways are for listeners that might be stuck in kind of a rut of repetitive thinking? Sure. And then we've gone through uh, pretty much all of them uh, as part of this conversation. So we talked about the purposeful tangents. We've talked about asking, you know, who else has solved the problem like this. So we've gone through most of it. The one which I want to highlight that uh, I didn't really give as an example yet, which I think is sort of an interesting one. We talked about asking better questions, which I think is great, but I want to give you an example that I think just really, uh, you know, explains the concept of asking better questions and the the impact that can have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a story from uh, one of the airports. And basically, one of the big complaints was that the passing that the bags took lo- too long at baggage claim. So they went through the process of innovating. They try to improve the baggage claim process, which obviously means, you know, faster conveyors, more baggage handlers, improved processes. They spent a lot of money and they got it from about 15 to 20 minutes down to about eight to 10 minutes. So you think that's a pretty good improvement. They asked the passengers, what's the biggest complaint that you have now about the airport? And what they heard was that baggage claim was still their biggest complaint. So what they realized was, is that if we're going to get it from eight minutes, and we spent all that money to get it to eight minutes, to get it to seven, six, or five is going to be prohibitively expensive. And then they realized that maybe they were solving the wrong problem. The issue wasn't the speed of the bags, it was the wait time. And they looked at it and they said, okay, well, it takes on average eight minutes for the bags to get from the plane to the baggage carousel, but it only took the passengers a couple of minutes to get from the plane to the baggage carousel. So they're waiting because... The people are faster than the bags. So instead of speeding up the bags, they slowed down the passengers. They reconfigured the airport so it would take about 8 to 10 minutes for the passengers to walk from the plane to the baggage carousel. Bags are waiting for them when they get there. Our experience of walking is different than our experience of waiting. And the satisfaction at the airport increased massively by making that change. But if they kept on asking, how do we make the bags go faster, they never would have dealt with people are waiting for their bags, which was the real issue. It wasn't the speed of the bags. It was the amount of time they were waiting. That was the real issue. So that, that's the fourth point uh, in, the, in the Success Magazine article. Basically, just to summarize, the first one was to find an analogy, which is the toothpaste example, leveraging the crowds, which was uh, the oil spill example from the Exxon Valdez, 
the purposeful tangents, which is pumps and pipes, and then the asking a different question, which is the example I just gave you with the baggage carousel. Okay, got it. And and let me ask because you you talked about the oil spill and the and and also the uh, Deepwater Horizon and use those as kind of contrasting examples of what's right and wrong with kind of the innovation process. Do you know where the actual eventual solution for the for the for the Deepwater Horizon uh, explosion came from? Yeah, that one I think just came from people who were who were experts on that one. So that was one that I think they just figured out on their own. And I think that was partly trial and error. They had 87 days to do a whole bunch of different experiments. I mean, before they went to the crowds, they had a half dozen different experiments. Uh, I think Kevin Costner provided one of those, one of those ideas, and, and those didn't work. Right. They did the crowdsourcing. None of those worked. And eventually they kept on trying, and there's, you know, nobody knows exactly what happened in that. I mean, it was, it was such a, a, a frantic situation. Right. But, uh, you know, I think it was pulling together in the end and this is what we know about breakthroughs. If breakthroughs rarely come from a single discipline. The real breakthroughs come from multiple disciplines. So it probably was a combination of somebody who is a pyrotechnic expert along with somebody who is an oil expert along with somebody who is an expert on fluid dynamics. And my, my guess is it was actually experts from multiple domains of expertise coming together and finding a solution. It probably was not just an oil expert or, uh, you know, an expert from one particular domain. Sure. Okay, so so let me ask you about the titles of your books, because a few of them have pretty provocative titles and take a little bit of a devil's advocates type stance toward conventional wisdom. Goal-Free Living is, is one of your books, and I think the title is pretty self-explanatory, but can you share the premise of that book with readers? Sure. I mean, Goal-Free Living, which is G-O-A-L, not G-O-L-D, I like gold, but G-O-A-L is what I'm not against, what I'm not for. Uh, so so goal-free living basically is the philosophy that, and this is not for everyone. I want to be clear. Look, there are some people who really do like their life planned out. Uh, and, you know, sort of loosening up a little bit could be a good thing, but the, the concept here is that we are in a goal-obsessed society where people believe they have to know where they're going to be in five years. And that's always one of the questions. Where do you want to be in five years? Like I have no, I mean, if you look at where I was a year ago, I would have never predicted all of the amazing things that I've been doing, even just one year later, trying to project where you're going to be in five years to me is a, is a ridiculous activity for most people. So goal free living is really on the concept of what I would call meandering with purpose. It's not just doing whatever the heck you want to do. It's not about chasing bright, shiny objects, but rather it's having a sense of direction, a sense of direction, not a specific destination, and then meandering with purpose, allowing things to unfold, course correcting as you gain new insights. Because the reality is if expertise is the enemy of innovation, our past experiences represent only a small, small, small percentage of what is possible for each of us as individuals and companies to do. And if we base all of our future projections based on past experiences, we will have a very limited view of the future. The opportunity is to actually allow life to unfold as you start collecting new experiences. As Steve Jobs said, creativity is just having enough dots to connect. Well, those dots are experiences that we have. And Goal Free Living is about how do we maximize the experiences and course correct as we move forward. Okay, and so, so let me ask you about the concept of magic and how it relates to innovation. One thing you've written about recently 
is what we can learn from magicians when looking to innovate. So what can we learn from magicians when looking to innovate? Well, I love magic. It's sort of my latest uh, uh, obsession, I guess you could say. It's a bit of a hobby of mine. I think we can learn a lot from magic for a whole number of different realms. So for innovation for in particular, there's a couple things that we know. First of all, magic is typically built on uh, what would be called visual misdirection. You're looking at something that's happening, you're convinced that's what's happening, and yet something completely different is actually taking place. Innovation is very much about a cognitive misdirection. We're moving in one direction. We think this is what we should be working on, but in fact, it's something else. And we need to understand as innovators that just as you can't trust your eyes when watching magic, you can't trust your brain when it comes to innovation. We have biases, like such as confirmation bias, which will impact our ability to conduct good experiments. Uh, so we can learn a lot just from this concept of misdirection. You know, what is happening with the brain that is potentially causing us as innovators to look in the wrong place? And I do believe that the yeah, but that a lot of people say is the enemy of innovation, I actually think it's the, wow, this is a great idea. Because if somebody gets too enamored with an idea or their own solution, the brain will have its own biases that start to kick in, and we will, just as like magic, we will not see the disproving evidence. We will not see why our idea that we are so wed to may actually be a terrible idea because we're only going to find the evidence to support it. So I think that whole concept of biases and misdirection and not trusting our eyes and brain is a big part of magic, and it has to be a big part of innovation. I would also say the other part of it is that innovation, uh, magic is all about making the impossible possible. We cut someone in half. Mm -hmm. Clearly, we can't do that. That's really what innovation is about, is how do we make the impossible possible? And the thought process that magicians use to do that is something which I think innovators can learn from. So I think magic is just a, an excellent metaphor for innovation. And in fact, I talked earlier about purposeful tangents. One of my purposeful tangents is actually magic. So instead of just studying innovation, I also study neuroscience, psychology, sports, performance, and magic as my purposeful tangents. Okay, nice. So we're, we're coming up on the end of the year, and I think this is probably a time that a lot of folks out there are stopping to reflect about the year that was and about the year that will be. One of the things you've written on your site at stephenshapiro.com is making New Year's resolutions that work or, or, or sometimes leaving out resolutions altogether and focusing on themes instead. So any tips for listeners out there as they come up with or don't come up with their own New Year's resolutions? Well, you know, it's sort of interesting. If you think about resolutions, uh, what we've found is that 92% of people who set a New Year's resolution fail to achieve it. 92%, that's pretty high, and that means, first of all, that we, we also know that people who set a goal and don't achieve it tend to have a lower level of satisfaction. So I look at sort of New Year's resolutions as a very masochistic type of uh, ritual that we've created. Mm -hmm. So instead of, you know, I want to lose 15 pounds or I want to stop smoking, something which is specific and measurable and usually punitive in nature, I try to go for broad themes. And a broad theme is something which is, uh, you know, something which is more all-encompassing, something which 
uh, is not necessarily specific. So I've had themes ranging from, uh, you know, leveraging relationships, which meant that I wanted to spend the year really connecting with as many people as possible and trying to figure out who can I great, create great partnerships with. Uh, I'm, I haven't decided on my theme for next year. I think one of them is going to be actually around discipline. Uh, I, I tend not to be very good at having routines. And so I want to at least have discipline as one of my themes for next year. I can't fail or not fail. It's not a specific measurable type of thing, but it really does change the way I view the world when I have a theme which helps me uh, you know, live out the next year. So it could be instead of dieting, it could be health. Uh, it could be just a number of different things that we do which helps us live a more enjoyable life rather than a punitive life. Okay, great. And we've talked, uh, we've talked about the books that you've written in the past, looking toward the future, anything that you're working on, on that folks should be keeping an eye out for on Amazon.com or the bookshelves at their Barnes & Noble? Well, I'm working on a new book, but it's in parallel with so many other things. So what I'm finding these days is books are useful, but digital products are also very useful. So we just launched, for example, a, a mobile game for innovation. We're creating some new digital learning platforms. And so we're, I'm really trying to, instead of create new content, go deeper in the existing content and be able to distribute it in digital means. So that's really where I'm putting my energies. I'll probably have a book in a couple of years, but it's too early to actually formally announce anything. Okay, got it. And is the, uh, is the, is the game something that's available to the general public? Uh, it is. It is. It's something which, I mean, it's typically, I say it's the general public, it's usually to my clients. It's something which we do after a speech. So okay. uh, once I leave the stage, everybody in the audience gets enrolled in this game and they play for 30 days. So uh, anybody who's at one of my events gets to participate in it. Okay, great. So, so we're getting a little low on time here, Stephen. Any final parting words of wisdom that you think listeners should take with them as they venture back out into the workplace and apply some of what they've heard here today? Well, I, I basically I could summarize everything that I talked about into a very simple formula. It is basically asking the right challenges, which is all about innovating where you differentiate. Spend your time on what really makes you distinctive. That's the first part. Mm -hmm. So ask the right challenges the right way, which is about don't think outside the box. Find a better box. It's about framing questions. And then ask questions to the right people, which means expertise is the enemy of innovation. Find people from different domains of expertise and you know, do experiments that help prove or disprove your hypotheses. That, to me, is the key. So ask the right challenges the right way to the right people. Okay, great. Uh, fantastic words of wisdom. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today, Stephen. Some great insights on how to harness the power of breakthrough thinking to drive innovation. Well, it was my pleasure. Thanks very much, Will. Absolutely. Thanks once again to Stephen Shapiro for joining us this week. And thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune in to next week's episode when for a very special Thanksgiving episode, we're excited to have someone on that we're all thankful for, Pete Erickson, the unofficial czar of the DC tech scene. We'll be talking with Pete about wearables, tablets, and the development platforms of tomorrow. We'll talk about where companies should look to make hay in the burgeoning wearable space, what tools and technologies hold the most promise for creating the next revolution, and web and mobile development, and what attendees to December's ModevCon can expect to hear about. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week.